Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. My name is Karen Roxanne Pineda, and I am the owner of Multicultural Counseling Associates, and I'm very excited to be part of season three. And you are speaking. And I am speaking. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) I forgot about that one. No, that's okay. So Karen, how are you? It's been a little bit since we talked to you. Yeah. I was thinking about that. It's been since summer, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The world's changed again. So again, yeah. Again, it's like we're on a four to five month cycle now where it's like every five months, things are totally different. My fantasy is we all get herd immunity by March and it's all good, but you know, I don't know. I've been wrong before. I mean, and even if we in the States all have herd immunity, you know, there's a global, the global issue around vaccines is I think also challenging for us because just think about having herd immunity for like seven plus billion people, like what kind of gigantic <laughs> undertaking that would be. That's true. They're neat. And also I'm one, I'm actually my boyfriend and I were talking about this over the weekend how realistic is it to get the world population with seven, what is it again? Seven billion people? Seven, yeah, seven plus billion, yeah. Seven plus billion people boosted every five months. That's almost impossible. Yeah, the whatever public health forces organizations were able to eradicate polio, but it took like 50 years or something ridiculous. I was just, I was actually just gonna say that. Like we have it in the United States, no one's really been concerned about polio for 50 years, but I mean, that was big news just two or three years ago that we eradicated polio, you know, it globally. So it's just not. Yeah. Or at least that it have it be like a cold you know, versus people be like the hospitals being overwhelmed. But yeah, anyway, that's whole other story, whole other podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> Absolutely. So this season, season three, we've been talking about people who are taking on roles, jobs um, that are sort of against their gender stereotype, against the gen- and so they're bucking, they're breaking gender norms. And our listeners will know that we have spoken to a, a gentleman who was uh, is gay, but also at various points in his life was a dancer, a cheerleader, a gymnast, and just sort of what, you know, what people thought about him. We've talked to my best friend uh, who is an engineer, um, a female engineer at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. 
we've talked to um, another friend of mine who is a stay-at-home dad. Um, and we've talked to other people who have, you know, sort of been taking on jobs or just roles in their lives that are very anti-stereotypical, right? They're, or they're stereotypical of the opposite gender. You know, uh, we had a couple of people on just talking about their experience, two men. So one of our friends and then our brother um, talking about their experiences with toxic masculinity and how that really hurts both genders. It's not just, you know, men or women, but it hurts everybody, including in, in academia, in, you know, the medical field and things like that. So just the fact that the idea of gender stereotypes and toxic masculinity is just overall toxic. And I think what's, what's really emerged of just these, you know, five or six interviews we've done in this season so far is that there's sort of toxic expectations, either masculinity and to some extent femininity. There's a lot of stereotype threat and then, you know, needing to be even better than, you know, a person in, of the opposite sex would be in that same role. Mm -hmm. um, and just how institutional some of this exclusion is and some of this, you know, sort of like, oh, why are you doing this? Or what are you doing here? And we, we know that all of those things can really deeply affect people's mental health, their sense of identity um, and their ability to move confidently in the world. So as a therapist, what would you say, you know, as a, as an overall approach to these kinds of gender issues, um, not sexuality, but gender issues and people working against type, you know, what have you seen and like, you know, how does it affect people? Well, off the top of my head, like the first thing I think about is working with men in therapy is a very different beast than working with women. A lot of therapy work is working with emotions, right? And, you know, as women, we're taught, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm thrilled, I'm disgusted. We're, we have a bigger vocabulary for emotions because we were allowed to experience more emotions. Granted, I think part of the issue that a lot of us in our society have is not being able to really feel certain emotions. But with men is particular, they grew up allowed to feel happy, excited, very provocative emotions and mad. Try to get a straight cis man to cry in therapy. I mean, granted, you don't, that's not generally your goal, but a straight cis man crying in therapy is so rare and it often so ashamed to the point where Often I've had to sit with them with this wheel that we have like this wheel in therapy that we use for naming emotions. And for some people you can get a, what you can use really this really detailed one where it's like, I'm angry, but I'm, but I'm really disgusted or I'm really fright or I'm so angry, but I'm really furious or whatever. We're able to get really the nuances of the words. With men, getting them to say I'm sad, like they'll get angry and you have to work for like figure out what's underneath that emotion and get to like, I'm sad or I'm hurt or I'm, you know, whatever, I'm feeling rejected. It's 
like pulling out, not like pulling teeth, but you have to work a little bit harder with them on just naming emotions and allowing themselves to cry, allowing themselves to feel something besides happiness and anger. And so their emotional experience is very blunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then obviously, and also too, I have to say violence in the workplace is often a big thing where you'll see um, like women in, um, in certain, in, you know, in male dominated professions, I say male kind of in quotes are often like often more likely to be sexually harassed, more likely to have to deal with workplace bullying more likely to be excluded from what's the such part of full workplace bullying is excluded from meetings. The idea of having to work twice as hard to get the same amount of respect. It's all part of it. And the big one though, I think that is in the workplace is the bullying. Cause that's also in the, in the sexual harassment, which it's pretty prevalent. And a lot of women don't do these careers some of it is because of that or that whole idea of honey don't you know even they're stopped from going into these careers too from oh honey you're just not good at math which starts very very young very 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 young yeah yeah we did hear from my my friend my best friend who is a female engineer that that one of the stories she said is when she started she got this desk area this cubicle that looked like a receptionist area yeah and it's hard, you know, she's like, I didn't know where everyone else was sitting. Maybe I just got stuck there because that was the free desk or maybe it, or who knows, right? I think one of the things we heard from her is that women in non-traditional careers or, you know, for the, for their gender, there's a lot of second guessing, right? That you are like, is this, is this, am I being discriminated against? Or is someone harassing me or is this person just a jerk? Are they like this in in every setting, did I get excluded because it was an oversight or someone trying to send me a message? How does that, how does that affect people's mental well-being? That trusting yourself of this feels wrong, but why is this happening to me? Because we want to think of the world as fair and nobody wants to think about their job as being discriminatory or harassing them nobody wants to go there and there is that I get it there's a that that's right on and just going back to the the violence you know or sexual harassment sexual violence um bullying in the workplace I remember there's a poignant uh, episode of uh, a sitcom called Brooklyn Nine-Nine where this woman was sexually assaulted in the workplace if she was like a investment like some stockbroker or something so a lot of men a lot of like alpha aggressive kind of you know like we're gonna get the money kind of uh douchey uh attitudes and then she fought back but then didn't want to file any kind of uh police report or anything because then that's gonna negatively impact her career then she's not gonna get invited to parties to play golf and then suddenly she's not getting the good deals and the good accounts. So, um, you know, there's a mental health, obviously, blow of getting sexual, sexually harassed or bullied, but then feeling the need to, if I want to get ahead, I, want, I have to just take it. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and if the reality is, it's true. I mean, I don't want to be all Pollyanna-ish. I'm not going to be Pollyanna-ish about it. Is if you file a sexual harassment complaint, then you become a quote-unquote troublemaker. And, you know, HR departments, they don't work for the employee. They work for the employer. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not, when an HR person, and granted, not all of them, but when an HR person gets a sexual harassment complaint, they're generally trying to protect the employer. You know, I know I have an attorney who protects who I, I contact him to protect me against certain things. And so granted, I like, I want to think that if somebody were to give me a sexual harassment complaint as an employer, that I would take it seriously and that I would do my best to punish the offender. You also, I think, I think the employer's mind goes to shit. What's my liability here? Because we are so litigious. Karen, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, when you said the HR, HR departments work for employers, I keep thinking they do what is required of them to protect the company from any litigation or any accusations. So like benefits administration, that's, that's like, oh, well, we need to make sure our employees are getting what we said we would give them so nobody sues us, right? Or there's not a complaint. And I imagine that HR departments are like, always look at these harassment, even if it's not sexual harassment, like workplace bullying, right? Harassment complaints is like, where is the liability? Is the liability, does it look like the li- we can get away with not doing this or do we absolutely have to do this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew somebody, I knew somebody who years ago, um, allegedly, it seemed like, you know, her manager really didn't like women, was trying to get rid of the women on the team. She ended up getting, you know, like a, a substandard letter saying like, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. She went to HR and said, I feel, I'm feeling attacked, like as a woman. And uh, the HR pretty much was like, told her sit tight and see what happens, which it sounds shocking, but then, I mean, this was probably 15 years ago. And now 15 years later, I've had enough experiences and heard enough things where I'm like, oh, that sounds about right. It sounds about right. And the, and yeah, so somebody goes to HR to complain about something. So it's like you have somebody in a non-traditional non-traditional role at a company, non-traditional gender role at a company, they are more likely to experience sexual harassment. They're more likely to experience workplace bullying, which by the way, workplace bullying is not illegal. The last time I checked, they're more likely to experience just a shitty environment. And if they complain, you know, you complain to HR, you're a troublemaker. That's really what ends up happening versus this is legit. Yeah, I mean, and it, and, you know, as we hear, like a lot of people are like, is this uh, intentional or is it coincidental, right? Because part part of filing these reports is you have to say, there is a pattern of an intentional behavior that's singling me out in a negative way. That's so many steps, like, 
intentional pattern, focus on me only, you know, about some, and here's, I think the kicker, a has to be a protected class of person, right? So for a lot of, I think that's, you know, you could say, oh, well, I can have all these emails and it's clearly about me and blah, blah, blah. But it's a protected class that really starts to get sticky. Protective class and is it really? And a lot of times people know because, you know, people who intentionally hurt others, like people who's going to, somebody's going to sexually harass you, somebody's going to bully you, they know what they can get away with. They know how to do just enough to not get in trouble or how to spin it right like I, I we're always told you know if someone wants to get you fired they'll find a reason oh you yeah know, go through your expense reports or they audit you or you know they're they're combing through your emails I mean it's they know how to make it happen oh totally totally yeah and it's disgusting and I think that's one of the things and also too I think for men it happens I don't want to just focus on women for men it also happens I'm thinking about men in the therapy field who they often are treated like commodities kind of like oh I got a guy you know oh I got a boy working for me I got a man working for me in one hand yeah you get excited because people want a male therapist but it's also I think this phenomenon of throwing a bunch of clients at them all at once like I remember the what how I experienced it so a very similar experience I had was when I started working at an at, um, at a workplace and I speak somebody that speaks Spanish I got all the Spanish-speaking clients and it didn't matter that I had 40 clients or whatever it was oh you speak Spanish you can see them and it was like this culture of if you don't see them, well, they're not going to get services. And you get this guilt trip. That happens to men in the counseling field. They get sexually harassed too by women. There's violence. There's, you know, all sorts of things that happen to them as well. People assume they're gay. Um, like, you know, flight attendants. Yeah. You know, a lot of people just assume a man is a man male flight attendant is gay or a nurse is gay. And I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter, but it also though is something that if you're working, you know, the idea of the 40 hour work week, that's one third of your life. If you spend one third of your life dealing with this, that's gonna affect your mental health. That's gonna cause anxiety, depression, all of the above, you know. Karen, I hadn't even ever thought about the the reverse. I mean, I can imagine it happens, but because so much of it is like women crossing over into male-dominated fields, I hadn't really even thought about men crossing over into female-dominated fields and connecting this back to sort of like men have a much harder time processing, processing their emotions because they just don't practice it as much. They've not encouraged to practice the tougher feelings of sadness and hopelessness and how does that then show up in in therapeutic settings for example or in educational settings you know I think there are a lot more college professors than there are elementary male elementary school teachers how does that show up for them either personally or professionally 
look, for example, at sexual harassment, right? So imagine you're a guy, you're taught sexual prowess is the way to go. If women are throwing themselves at you, you're a tough guy and you're good and you're hot and all of these things. But if you're trying to work and you have five women throwing themselves at you, while, yeah, that could be flattering, it's also like it's also still objectification and it's also still something that over time is kind of like will affect you know will will objectify you or if you have a male elementary school teacher people are going to assume you're either gay or a pedophile right or if you know and but also to the idea of if you're just trying to do your job right and you have women thinking, oh, he's the only guy here. I'm going to try to date him. It's like, dude, I'm trying to do my job. I'm not, you're not here to gain dates. Or what if you're in a monogamous relationship? What if you just don't want to, right? But it's constant. And it's going to chip away at different feelings. And it's going to chip and it's going to cause anxiety. It's going to cause you to feel more anxious around certain people. Because the other part of it is, and the reality this is a very much reality. I know for a fact, if I got, I mean, I would never do this. If I had a male employee and I were to sexually harass him, he wouldn't be believed. They would believe me and I could say whatever I want. And it's going to be that he said, she said thing. Well, guess what? A, I'm the person in power and B, they have no recourse. They're going to believe me. But the other thing, if you look at it, even on a, on like an, even if, if, if it's coworkers who are on the same title and have the same, same like level, it's going to be this, he said, she said thing. And li- again, liability wise, HR is going to be like, yeah, no, he's not sexually. She's not, I mean, unless it's super obvious, it's going to be like, oh yeah, he should just take it. And also socially, it's like, A girl's hitting on you. What's wrong with you? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. A girl's hitting on you. You got 20 women hitting on you. What's wrong with you? Sleep with all of them. And it's like, dude, I don't want (laughs) to, you know. You hit the nail on the head there when it's like, well, what's HR going to do? Well, they're going to look at liability. And so regardless of what the real story is, they're likely to go, who's likely to be the harasser in this situation? And, you know, the man in that situation will get unfairly tagged, unfairly targeted, unfairly labeled, even though the woman, the superior or even, you know, equal is they're, they're the, they're, they're the perpetrator in this situation. Yeah. They're always, that's the thing. They're always going to be the, seen as a perpetrator. The man? I mean, it's always going to be seen as a perpetrator. It's very rare. Well, I'm not going to say it's rare. People generally view the man as the perpetrator versus the woman the immediate assumption yep and i like shayla she worked in um you know domestic violence mediation or what inter crisis intervention so yeah when in graduate school i worked at a dv shelter where after the after the police went out and dealt with the you know domestic disturbance they would call the crisis intervention team two volunteers would go out there and we would try and talk to the person who was the police said was the victim um and and nine times out of ten 
you know, it was the, the male partner perpetrating on the female partner. But there's a small group of female partners perpetrating on male partners. And I tell you, those male partners do not want to talk to you. Right. Or they're not going to, and the thing is, they're not going to be believed. Right. Well, even if like, you know, the crisis, because, because the thing is all, not all, but almost all perpetrators say the same things that victims always take the responsibility on themselves and Perpetrators are always like, well, they caused me to do it, or I was drunk. There's just excuses up and down sideways, regardless of what the gender is of the perpetrator. But male victims did not want to talk to us. Like, we're, we are here to believe you. We, we're here because we, we actually believe you're the victim. Nope, not the victim. In all of these situations, the toxic masculinity that's sort of in place, that sort of, you know, it's the air we breathe, male victims stay same sex or opposite, you know, opposite sex, they stay in really abusive relationships because the thinking is how could a woman actually be abusing me? How could I be receiving physical abuse from a woman? That's not manly. Mm -hmm. We all know, well, hope maybe we don't all know, but many of us know the effects of staying in an abusive relationship on your well-being physical. Yes. But emotional, spiritual, sexual, psychological, it's so crushing there have been studies looking at the difference like the how the um torture is very similar to domestic violence it's like almost exactly the same and actually to workplace bullying has been compared to domestic violence and the tactics that are used are ex all three they're exactly the same oh i think and that's a really important finding that people are more likely to dismiss workplace bullying, harassment, sexual or not, right? It doesn't have to be uh, a sexual harassment to be bullying. Um, but they're like, oh, well, I just have a crummy boss or this and that. Like, instead of thinking, actually, this is a toxic workplace. I am being abused in some way. Um, but it's really hard to put those two things together. And not just for men, for women too. Nobody wants to be the victim. Nobody wants to feel like a victim because that's basically saying I have no power here. And that is really hard to, in one hand, it helps take away that responsibility. But on the other hand, it makes you feel very powerless. It makes you feel powerless. And I imagine entrapped, right? Because then if you have to have that job or stay in that relationship in order to keep food on the table and things like that, you actually get to the point where you're like, I'm choosing to stay here and I'm choosing to stay in this shitty job with a toxic work environment and a bullying boss. And that's, it's just even more dehumanizing to be like, oh, I'm choosing this. And you also realize too that you can't leave, right? Because the reality is, if you look at domestic violence, women often either are manipulated into staying, but the other thing is abusers, they, the way that power and control works, if you think about it, not in terms of physical violence or sexual violence, you look at it in terms of a pattern of behavior, 
nobody gets slapped on the first date. Well, very few people get slapped on the first date and are like, oh, cool, I want to stay with you. Generally, if you get slapped on the first date, you're never seeing that person again, right? But they'll take their time. They actually will groom a person. And then after a couple of years, that's when the physical violence starts. And by then, they have very few social networks. They are completely isolated. Maybe they don't have a job. And they're kind of stuck. And they, and it's actually dangerous to leave at that point. And then I like, get a job, it's the same thing, right? Because, yeah, you can leave, but maybe they're paying you just enough that if you leave, you're going to have a pay cut. Or maybe your boss isn't going to let you leave. A lot of times for like, even if you want to shift departments, your supervisor has to approve it. Or if you want to leave a job, great. But again, HR, well, they can't, well, they're not allowed to give you a bad reference. The key thing is they're not eligible for rehire. Then you, that's the, that's the, the phrase of death, right? Well, and they can't, and again, like you said, they can't put that stuff on the record, but you know, some of, some of these industries are pretty small and the circles are really small. And, you know, I work in a huge industry, but people move around a lot and be like, oh yeah, I used to work with that person at XYZ company. Uh, I'll just give them a call and let them know how Susie Smith um, left this company or something. It's, there are ways, there are covert ways of, of tanking and people. And they're perfectly legal. And they're perfectly legal. Like I can call my friend and mention, oh yeah, so-and-so called me. They're, they're applying for a job. What, don't give me some, the scoop. And that's legal. I mean, that is completely legal. It's gossip, but it's legal. And the, and the, um, and the employee will never know right? They will never, the candidate will never know if this happened unless you tell them. And so it can be very damaging. And then also the idea of like, and actually um, this is one of the things I'm really glad is a case is like non-competes are now illegal in Illinois for certain, like, I think under a certain level, I'm not sure exactly, but you know, the, the way non-competes work, you know, yeah, I can leave, but I can't work in this industry because it's, you know, I can't, I have to live, stay in this area and it's 10 miles away. What am I going to do? Absolutely. I mean, even, even to the extent where if you call for a reference, you don't even have to say anything that is off the record or anything, a simple tone, a pause. Hey, we're calling about X, Y, and Z candidate. Would you like to, you know, for a reference check? Would you hire this person again? Mm. No, we would not hire this person again. Like, or the the ultimate, like, yeah, I would. However, in this in this capacity or a different role, or um, there's ways, there's things you can say without yeah. saying them. And so, you have somebody that's dealing with harassment or bullying or all sorts of things. And even if it's just a shitty boss, if you, can, I, can I say shitty on the yes, podcast? I'm sorry. <laughs> you absolutely can. Even a shitty boss, you, there's the things that aren't said, the, the, 
the codes that you use that say everything. Absolutely. So I want to take a step back and also talk about institutional sexism, which is you know a little different, right? We're all talking about forms of institutional sexism, but we're talking about very um, virulent forms of sex institutional sexism, which are very much um, targeted as opposed to institutional sexism being the water that we all swim in and that we almost don't even recognize it until someone points it out to us. I believe, this is all just me saying what I believe, that there's the corollary of toxic femininity, but we, but we don't actually discuss that in the landscape, right? And I think um, one of the things we heard that we kind of came to when we were talking to my friend who was a stay-at-home dad is just how much pressure women put on themselves to be bond with their baby, be a perfect mom. Oh, I'm having a tough day and there's something wrong with me. As opposed to, you know, when he's like, when I was having a tough day, I was like, just having a tough day. This is a tough day. It'll be better tomorrow. And it's not sort of an identity crisis why you're not doing it well. Um, and there's, that is a whole thread too, which I think affects women. Oh, well, as women, I always, I tell my, uh, my female clients, my mom, my mother's this is no matter what you do from the moment your baby is, even how you conceive your baby, you're doing it wrong. No matter what, absolutely, no matter what, you know, the whole thing, like if, when, I don't know if you, this happened to you when you were pregnant, I remember drinking a diet Coke on the, on the L when I was pregnant and getting dirty looks. I remember um, like when I, when my son was born, it was like, if you breastfeed, God forbid you do it in public. God forbid you do it this way. God forbid all of these things. But if you formula feed, oh my God, wow. I remember hearing the term dead food. Like you're feeding your food, your child, something that's dead. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> no matter well, what has- you do, you're doing it wrong. And that's horrible. You know, that's also... That's, but that's part of toxic femininity, right? And, and, you know, that's what women perpetrate on each other, right? There, you don't see a lot of like men going like, why are you formula feeding your baby? Or like, why are you having Diet Coke when you're pregnant? Um, men don't say that to women. Women say that to each other. Um, and, and just again, like how much that affects your own mindset of like, oh, I'm not doing this right. I am failing, something goes wrong. And you're like, I'm not meant to do this. Whereas not to say that stay at home dads have it super easy, right? But in talking to him, it's like, oh, they get a pass on so much of this self-doubt and self-flagellation that women do as moms all the time. Because the whole idea of with men, if a man picks up a vacuum once, oh my God, they help so much versus you know, we're expected to pick up the vacuum. The other thing I was going to bring up was the idea of tokenism and, you know, how people internalize things and feel like if they're the token girl or the token person of color or the token lesbian, right? Like how, if I say something that like, this is just the price I pay to be in this position. The idea of tokenism, but also the idea of people assume that you're in that position 
because you're female, because you're a person of color, because of whatever, versus you got in because you know what you're doing and you have the qualifications. And yeah, you happen to be a woman. Maybe the thing about it is, for example, when I hire, if I hire an African-American or a Latino therapist or a transgender therapist, I am going to places where they might be to recruit. It's not like I'm saying like my Indeed profile and I'm being like, oh, good, a black person. Let me, you know, I may, I'm, I'll be on, I may look at their, I'm going to look at their resume and I'm going to, I might interview them, but if they're not qualified, I'm not hiring them. Or if I get bad references or if I get, but you know, but the assumption is there for all sorts of employers. And I'll be honest, and some employers will do that. Like, oh, we need, we need more white, we need, we have too many white people at the table. Let's hire the person of color. Oh, we need a woman here. Let's get a woman. And that does happen. But I also think that what happens more often is qualified people get hired. And they happen to be a woman, they happen to, or male, or they happen to be a person of color. And people assume, oh, they just got hired because of. Well, and I can imagine for you, as a therapist, you know, be, you're like, well, you might go somewhere to to recruit somebody who is a transgender therapist because you have a clientele who needs to talk to somebody who looks like them or who has felt what they've felt, et cetera, et cetera. So you recruited them because they are transgender, but you didn't hire them because they are transgender. Right, right. Right, exactly. Because if you know, if you're not qualified, if you're not a good therapist, you're not going to get hired by me. Right. And I think most people view their companies and their businesses as, if they want to think this, as a representation of them. Right. If Zoe over here has a bad experience with a therapist at my practice. That reflects on me and on my and my work. So I'm going to be very, very careful when I hire people to make sure I trust them with my clients. And if I don't trust you with my client, with not my, my client, with the people that call us, then, well, no, I do see them as my clients. If I don't trust you with my clients, with the people that call my practice, who've been referred to me or my company agency, then I'm not going to hire you, period. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care. I don't care if you're the most sought after therapist in the world. If I don't trust you, I don't trust you. I mean, I feel like all that just goes back to like the constant doubting that people have in these situations, which is, am I here? Cause I deserve to be here. Should I do this? Do I have a, is my boss in a cranky mood or am I being singled out? Um, is this, is this oversight intentional or is it just coincidental, right? Is it like, was someone being thoughtless or is this sending home a point? Um, and, and I feel like I can, I can imagine that that constant doubt, constant questioning in a workplace, whether you're amazing at your job or whether you are a token, right? 
it drives people out because it's exhausting to every day be like, do I belong to be here? What do I have to guard against? Who can I trust? It, that's not a great, you can't work your best. You can't work. You can't work in that. No, I think years and years, or even six months of that will affect your mental health. Even a couple of months, even a day, I think even a day of that would affect your mental health. Do you, as a therapist, have you seen anything very explicitly and sort of solely connected to workplace trauma with a small T? Um, you know, I can absolutely imagine that you would see depression, anxiety, a lot of stress related, you know, both emotional and physical ailments, right? Is there anything that's very like, oh, this happens or you've had this experience and this is definitely a workplace thing as opposed to generalized symptoms of people being under stress? Well, I actually had a client recently just name it and say, yeah, because I'm a woman working in this profession, I have to work twice as hard. And I remember we were talking about it because she was feeling horrible that day. And I can't give too many, too much information, but she was feeling awful that way day. Her son and her, and her husband were sick. She wasn't feeling well. And she had this phone call like an hour after our session. And she was like, and I'm like, well, why are you even doing it? She's like, because if I don't do it, they'll think of me as like a bad worker or I'll be, I won't be seen as qualified, even though she is highly qualified. She does, is very good at her job and is in leadership positions. It was one of those, she's smart enough to be able to see it, name it and say it. And it casts a lot of self-hatred, self-doubt. So, and, you know, it's, it's, I mean, think of, I mean, if you, and, it, and it's, what gets me is somebody in a majority culture, like somebody that's not been oppressed, they don't even think about these things. The, what I, I think the big place where, where I saw it the most, I don't know if either one of you has seen the show Succession. I haven't, but I've read a little bit about it. Okay, so mainly it's four kids who are come from this uber rich family, but you know we're talking like Bernie Maddox kind of wealth, and the dad is basically thinking about who's going to come after, who's going to inherit the CEO position. But all four of them are complete are complete idiots, would not be qualified. Maybe one is somewhat qualified. And they're all trying to get this position. And if nobody questions them on, are they, they don't even, the, the thought of maybe I'm not qualified doesn't cross their mind. And I think that says it right there where people, and actually I think this is an example of people walking around just assuming, yeah, I deserve this CEO position. Why wouldn't I? I can learn. If I don't know it, well, I'll figure it out. Or I've got people I can boss around or whatever. And I don't think people in targeted groups ever, ever, ever have experienced that. Very rarely will experience that. Yeah. This, this, the sense of like, well, who's going to stop me? Of course I'm going to get it. Or, you know, I have read 
that studies that say that um, men, when even though they're unqualified for a role, will absolutely apply for something. And women, even when they are overqualified, ask themselves, should I even do this? Am I qualified? Even though they're like qualified plus. Or even like assuming that you can work somewhere. Like I remember, this is a memory that I never ever goes away from me in my personal experience is I worked at this one, I, when I was in college, I worked at a nursing home and I was talking to a coworker who was like, we were both kind of just sick of working there. We were having like this burnout moment. And she was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to Kmart. Back then it was Kmart, you know, and I'm just going to go work at Kmart. And I remember thinking, wow, I've applied to Kmart and they never, I apply and nobody even calls me. What are you doing? And and back then I didn't have a name for it, but I was like, how do you get, just get a job at Kmart and just assume you're going to work there? I never did. I would apply to jobs and hope they would call me because I was this little brown 18 year old girl, you know, applying to jobs versus a white girl. Mm Mm-hmm. My company just hired a national sales director and um, they hired a woman. And there was so much conversation, like no, no one was saying anything shitty. No one was saying anything bad, but there, it, there were a lot of people who were like, they hired a woman. Isn't that awesome? They hired this strong, qualified, competent woman. And if it was a man, they wouldn't be like, oh my God, isn't it awesome that they hired a man? Like it just never would have come out like that. It, you, you'd be talking about something else about him, but the, his gender would not have been part of the conversation of his qualifications. Right. I got, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So for somebody, you know, so a client comes into you and it's clearly affecting their mental health. Like this woman who's, who's like, well, I have to work twice as hard. How how can you counsel that person? Cause they are trapped, right? And they do have to work twice as hard. So you can't tell them to back off. You can't tell them just don't, you know, don't work twice as hard. You can't tell them to leave their job. How do you even start to counsel somebody like that through this kind of depression, anxiety, work-related mental health strife? Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say it's an easy, that's a whole, I could talk about that for hours. I think I'm a big fan of naming it, pointing it out. And often people are able to then start thinking about it or to say, wait, why do I have to do it? They may not work twice as hard and maybe there are no consequences. Maybe they test it out. There's people are, I think people are very, very resilient and very smart and have huge capacity. And so often just naming it helps them figure it out. And then you support them in whatever choice they want to make. Maybe they do want to leave their job. Okay, let's talk about what that's going to look like. Maybe they do want to start their own business or maybe they decide to stay there and figure out a way to make it work. And they usually come up, it's amazing what people come up with and how it works for them because they figured it out. 
So it's really about naming it. And that is liberating to say, okay, now I've at least figured out what it is. And I'm not the crazy one, right? Like I, I'm not. Or to even say to them, wow, that must be really hard that you feel like you can't even like get off this, you can't even like get out of this phone call at 11 o'clock when you're tired and you don't, you're not feeling up to it. Yeah, I think so, so much of what's hard in CV situations, any kind of abuse situations is that, is that the, the victim, the person, you know, doesn't trust themselves at all. They don't trust their own assessment of what's happening. They don't, they've been told so much that like, you can't trust other people. I'm the only person you can trust. So you actually have to align yourself with the abuser in, in some sort of weird twist. That is what is best for you in those situations. That's how you survive. That's how you survive. And that's true for in work situations too, which is if you've got an abusive boss, you have to align yourself with that person because if you don't, it's going to get much worse. Right. So have you seen... It's going to sound weird, but have you seen a difference in um, the why behind why, in general, the why behind why women go into therapy and why men go into therapy? Because, I, you know, what I've seen is psychiatrists are predominantly men and older men. You don't have a lot of younger people going into psychiatry, but yes, the overwhelming number of women go into therapy. So when you look like, when you look at any kind of differences in motivation, in strengths, um, is there any kind of like gender categorization? Or yeah, is- definitely. I mean, we're taught to be nurturers. We're taught to be helpers. And so naturally, and notice how we're taught, we're not natural helpers. We're taught to be helpers. We're taught to care about other people. We're taught to have empathy and we're taught those things at a very, very, very young age. You know, we're taught, oh, why don't you, you know, we're taught to share your doll with Susie because she, um, how do you think she feels? Boys aren't taught that. Boys are taught, you get that doll or you get the truck. You know, you fight for what you want. And then we're also, I mean, counseling and social work in some psychology, some psychology programs too, don't require as much math and science as other ones. Mm -hmm. So even if you look at psych, if you look at psychology in general, now, well, for, I'm going to explain counseling and social work. I'll explain counseling because I know counseling. We take one psych, one statistics class and one research methods class. That's it. And the stats is a joke. I mean, and like, I remember in my program, the stat, and maybe it changed, it was 20 years ago, but I remember I was pretty good at math in college and pretty good. And I'm, I think a lot sometimes in a math fashion, my dad's a computer scientist. So it's like, I was taught to think that way a lot. And stats was super easy for me in undergrad. So I remember going to grad school, my counseling program in particular, and being like, this is really easy stuff and people are having such a hard time with it. 
And I see it, I saw a lot of it as this block that my mostly female cohort had. And so, and then research methods was kind of similar too. And it was kind of dumbed down for us. You have women who have been taught from a very young age, oh, honey, you're not good at math and science. And then you have this field where you're helping people, you're going to naturally go into it. And then it's funny because in psychology, there's three different paths you can take. So if you want to be, you can do research, which is one form, and that's very statistics oriented, very research oriented, and it's more of a male dominated field. But then you have clinical psychology. So for clinical psychology, there's two, again, there's two different paths. There's a PhD track, and then there's a PsyD track. Mm-hmm. The PsyD track, well, they're, they're both very rigorous. I'm not going to die, but if you look at the programs, the PsyD track has a lot less stats, has a lot less um, research stuff, you know. And so, you know, as women, and I'm just very sarcastic, just, you know, we can't bother our pretty little heads with that, right? And so our brains are too small. Our brains are too small. Yeah. Our brains are too small. We cannot bother our pretty little heads with that. So we can't, we quote unquote, can't do that. So you're going to see so many women in these, with PsyDs, with counseling degrees, with social work degrees, because they're helping professions and we dominate the helping profession world. And here's a career, but you don't need a lot of math. And so bingo, you have the combination. It's, it's also very similar in public health. I have my master's in public health. And even at the master's level, it's like uh, most of the men were in epidemiology and, and biostatistics. And most of the, you know, the other, the environmental health program was kind of 50-50, but health policy and health behavior, especially were almost all women. Um, and it's also true, you know, the, the PhD, DRPH, which is the equivalent of the PsyD, is it tends to split like that in some ways because those DRPHs or PsyDs are very practice-oriented terminal degrees, whereas PhDs are very theoretical-oriented degrees where it's like, do some research about something and contribute to the field as opposed to do some research about an implementation or an approach or a tactic and it's its implication for the field of you know, right. And so there's also in a way this sexist undercurrent about women are supposed to be helpers. Well, I'm going to go into a field where I can actually do something for other people, not necessarily just learn some esoteric piece, you know, have some tiny sliver of knowledge in which I'm the expert. And then it just, okay, so then what? So then I teach about it and I talk about that thing or whatever. Right. And I'm not saying this is, this is not to say that women aren't interested in PhDs and vice versa, but that even if you look at like what the two degrees are supposed to be doing in the world, one is much more detached. It's very detached yeah. and sort of at arm's length and, and actually in a way unemotional, right? It's like what the data says, what it says, as opposed to a practical based degree, which is like, you need to engage with your constituents to figure out if it's working or not. Are you helping people? Are you making it better? Uh, which you know goes back to what we've all been conditioned to believe, 
women are nurturers, girls are nurturers, yeah. and men are, you know, emotion neutral, or all they want to do is just win. Even dolls, you know, you don't I mean traditionally, you don't give a boy a doll. You know, they get action figures versus girls get dolls because, you know, the girl takes care of the baby. And I remember, <laughs> I love my mom. So I remember. I like that you have to say that. In case she listens. In case she listens. Is. I remember when my son was really little. He was two. And I think we gave him a doll. And I think we gave him a kitchen. And my mom was like. I would never give a boy a kitchen. And a doll. Why are you giving him a doll? It's like because you liked it. You know. And that's not a big deal. You know. And. I think my ex-wife mentioned this, um, this research. I don't remember. I can't tell you where it is, but she was saying that there's some research out there that talks about how if you give a boy a doll when they're little, they become really, they, they, it's like there's like a link between that and them being really good dads and being much more nurturing as a dad when they're older, which is just kind of some fun fact here. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, girls from very young age, model and mimic with dolls what they see boys don't ever get to model it they don't get to mimic what it might feel like to carry around a a child except for you know and it takes a lot of inner work a lot of focus and like self-reflection to break out of those those ingrained stereotypes about who does what and you know like referencing back to the beginning you're saying you know a lot of men are not, they, they don't have practice accessing most, you know, sort of more tender, more nurturing emotions. It's like you said, like happiness, excitement, and anger. Um, and so, you know, even softer emotions or that just doesn't. Even nuanced emotions, the nuanced in emotions, they're not, like they don't get, they don't get to have those. I wanted to revisit because you had said those tender emotions and making them better dads and uh, revisit the idea of assumed sexuality when men, especially. So if someone was like, I don't know, you want to do, you want to be in construction, Kosha, that that you must be a lesbian. First of all, I don't think that that tends to be a stereotype or of any kind, but for women, it doesn't at at least from my vantage point, it doesn't seem to be this huge insult for someone to assume that I'm a lesbian or I must be gay or whatever. Um, but for men, it starts very early um, that, that you know, if they want to wear a dress, if they want to paint their nails, if they want to play with a doll, that's girly. And either you're making him gay or he's gay or something. And because it almost feels like, well, that shouldn't be a problem. So who cares if someone thinks you're gay? You're, if you are, or it's not the point. But we do know that that has repercussions on a, a man's psyche, right? And there's that very there's that very famous Friends episode where the, uh, Ross and Rachel wanted to hire, or Rachel wanted to hire this wonderful man who was a nanny. And the question was like, well, he must, is he gay? He must be gay how I mean that cannot I I guess I don't even know if there's a question here but it's like that cannot be good for a man's psyche and then having to wrestle with this idea of but it shouldn't bother me right well the thing is 
boys call each other gay when they're very young to insult them to it's basically what it's not they're, they're, they sh it shouldn't be the case but when you tell a boy you're gay you're basically saying to what that child hears is you're not really a boy you're less than a boy you must be like a girl even the expression you throw like a girl right that, you know, that bleeds, I mean, as much as we want to say that we're involved and that we, you know, we're, you know, we don't think these ways, these things affect you. And a lot of these, like the impressions and a lot of what you learn from the world about the world is under eight, when you're under eight, under 10 years old. So by the time you get to be 12, 13 years old, a lot of things have imprinted in your mind. And so if a man is being questioned because he's a, a nanny, then it's like, oh, well, you know, I must, you know, it's like that, that emasculin, emasculinization keeps happening and it keep and it, it's there, even though you don't want it to be. And on a very conscious level, you know, it shouldn't bother you. It's bothering you because it bothered you when you were five and you had, didn't know any better. And because it was used as a way to insult you and hurt you when you were five. So again, we're going back to like, the, our, our connecting threads with you, Karen, are like childhood and generational trauma. Yeah. It, if it's race, if it's gender, if it, it all comes back to this passed down trauma that seems to be at the core of a lot of these, you know, mental health issues. So I wanna, I, I wanna, I have a question to ask you about sort of like what the way forward is. But as Kosha brought up this idea of generational trauma, I want to take the opportunity to ask you while things are hot off the presses, what was your take on Encanto? Oh, I loved Encanto. Oh my God. That, well, I, first I, of all, you're Colombian. So yes. we have to take that part <laughs> and be like, okay, let's get all the excitement. It's Colombian. I have Colombian friends. It's a beautiful representation of Colombia and the music. When I watched the preview, and I'm sorry, I'm like, I cry when I think about it. Cause it's like, finally I'm being represented here. I remember seeing, there was a, there's a scene where the mom gives Mirabel an arepa and heals her with an arepa. And I'm like, oh my God, arepas. That's either Colombia or Venezuela. We have to watch this. <laughs> so then I go and I Google it and I'm like, it takes place in Colombia. Oh my gosh. I was so excited to have that representation. And it was such a good example of how we're stuck in our roles. Um, like Louisa, she has to be the strong one. Isabella, she's the beautiful one who has to, you know, make everything pretty and always be pretty and always, you know, do the things and always, you know, and yeah, she has to marry the, this guy because she's beautiful, all of those things. And that's her role, right? And everybody had their role. Even like the one character, I forgot her name, that she was an aunt who had that cloud over her. Yeah, Peppa. Yeah, what was, what was her name? Tia Peppa. Tia Peppa. It was like, yeah, because we have to control our emotions. Again, we have to be happy we have to be positive at toxic po i saw it as toxic positivity mm -hmm. all of those things and of course bruno like bruno named it all bruno was said the truth 
he was cast away. We don't talk about Bruno. Very much an example of roles and generational trauma, again, where we have to, to stay safe. We have to do this. And if we don't do this, we're not safe. Our family, our house will be destroyed if we don't do these things that we're supposed to do. Yeah. I just, and so I brought that up as sort of also a reflection on workplace generational trauma, right? There is sort of a sense of like, everyone has to be in their roles and, oh my gosh, there's a man in a woman's role. And how threatening is that for our institution, our business? Yeah, good point. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. And that I think so many people are not actually aware of the the low grade fear, concern, worry about like how destabilizing is it going to be to introduce someone from the opposite sex into a traditionally, you know, male or female workplace, you know, that sort of fear of like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? But it's always been like this and now it's going to be different. And we all know people don't like change. Different is always bad, even though, um, different could be really good, but we always sort of catastrophize and go to the worst case scenario. Um, and that's where people go. And so I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that that's some excuse for workplace toxicity, right? But I think no, to no. get at the underlying reason, like why are people freaked out? Why is this so hard to like treat your female employees the same as to treat your male employees, to treat everyone the same? Because the house will burn down. The house will literally burn down. Yeah. I was just wanted to get your take on that because it's like so of the moment. Oh yeah, that's a perfect, I, yeah, that's, you could write, I, I think Disney movies, the two that I've really liked, so the, the ones that I really liked is that one and then is Encanto and then the other one with the feelings like, oh. Inside Out? Inside Out. Inside Out was another one that's like, they could be, ther- they, like I bring that up in therapy to this day. Like I use joy as an example of positive, um, of toxic positivity all the time. Yeah, and I think you're, I hadn't really put this together, but yeah, when you think about her character, almost all, you know, up until like 90% in the movie, she's like, be happy, be happy, be happy. No, no sadness, no sadness, right? Um, And that is toxic positivity. Like no matter what's happening to you, you should just be grateful and thankful and be happy that you're here or whatever it is. The other one that I I bring up is is Coco. Is this, you know, generate, have you seen Coco? Yeah. Yeah, generations ago, something bad happened with, you know, music, music took this man away from this woman. And so nobody in the family can like music, no musicians, right? Like we don't listen to music. And that's what four generations later, they're like, music is bad. It's evil. It tears families apart. When it really was just this interpersonal situation that happened four generations ago. Yeah. Right. I agree. I totally agree. So, so what's the way forward here? Do you have any thoughts or insights about how we can address either the ongoing workplace trauma that people experience or help shift workplaces to move away from toxic mindsets around who does what? Oh God, that's hard. Fix us, Karen, fix us. Okay, <laughs> if you think about it, this has been going on for generations, right? Now, again, I'm optimistic in this situation where we are not where we were 50 years ago, right? Every generation, I think, 
makes things a little bit better. And if you think about it like that, if you think about it like, okay, how can we change this in small ways? People are very, very resistant to big changes. Think about New Year's resolutions, right? Or actually, here's a perfect example. I tried doing 75 hard on January 1st. I don't know if you know what 75 hard is. It's this crazy program where you're doing like two workouts a day. You follow a diet. You have to like work out outside. It's like crazy ass shit. And (laughs) I lasted two days on it. And I'm somebody that exercises regularly and has, you know, has been pretty disciplined because it was so much at once that I was like, I can't do this. People are like that. If you throw all of this at them, They're going to freak out and nothing's ever going to change. But if you start naming it, if you look at small changes that can be made in the workplace, small changes that can be made in families, even if like people start giving their boys dolls and giving their girls trucks, you know, that will start making a difference. Granted, we're not going to have this totally evolved, perfect world in this century even. I will maybe, you know, in this century, but not in 2022. It will happen if every generation we start like make we start learning from the past generations. Because I'm sure we're doing stuff wrong. Karen, you've got a, you've got a middle schooler just like I do. And let me tell you, when my middle schooler decided that they, you know, their identity was non-binary. It took, it took me a long time to get my head around it. I was like, well, you know, when we were kids, gender was just related to your genitalia. Like his meant male genitalia and hers meant female genitalia. And it didn't mean anything about who you are, but yet you see these young people are like pushing back on even that kind of binary, which is like, there's a lots of different ways to be a person, right? Again, it's sort of breaking, chipping that away just a little bit to be like, well, you don't just have to go by he and him. And she and hers, right? Right. And the thing is, that is young people teaching us, right? Think about what their kids are going to teach them that we have no idea of, right? And that's what gives me hope. When I see young people, I get hope. And I tear up. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. You know, it's like, I tear up because I think about that. It's like, I had a proud mama moment when my son was a lot. Well, I, I'm having a lot of proud mama moments, but one of them, one of the proud mama moments I had was my son and I were watching a, TV, um, a play and I'm blanking on the name, but they were talking about gender roles and singing about a girl who didn't want a doll or a boy who wanted a doll. And my son was really bored. And I, for me, it was like this big deal and everything. My son was really bored. And then he was like, mom, what is the big deal about a boy having a doll? And then actually when Encanto came out, I was like, oh my God, we have to see it. And he looks at me, he goes, why? And I'm like, because Colombia, it's about Colombia. And he's like, but I'm represented and stuff. And this little, you know, a little Latino boy with two moms. For him, it's not a big deal. So think about that. Like, his kids are probably going to surprise him with stuff. But that is they're going to have a totally different, it's, to, it's progress, right? And I think looking at those things 
And then also, I think it's about figuring out a way to change. You have to change the, the whole structure, right, of our society, right, which I think that happens over time. And I think the other changes that need to happen is having people that can challenge the status quo in these positions of power, you know, figuring out ways to influence a CEO of a company on these things, doing trainings in HR on basic stuff like sexual harassment, training the police, training people in power on these things. And I, be I believe it has to be, you have to look at your own racism, your own sexism, your own isms. And that's important, but I think it's important to start where they are and inch things forward because that's gonna absolutely. be a lot more palatable because you're absolutely right. In their mind, on some level, they're thinking, oh my God, the house is gonna burn down. Right. Because Luis has gotta be the strong one. And if she's not, you know, what are we gonna do? Yeah, and on some level, you know, some of it is obviously, you know, in workplaces, it's very like, well, there's only so many slots, right? So it's like, if I'm, there's a competitive aspect to it as in families, there's not necessarily, children are not competing for slots in the family in the sense right. of like, but there are people, the expectation of what it means to be this person or that person in the family. And then also this sense of like, not only are people enforcing, you know, a, a structure, because they're afraid, but then people feel like they can't step out of the structure because they're being enforced, that's being enforced on them. So it's sort of this two-way street. It's a lot of, I think, focusing on educating the people in power, but also helping them understand you might lose some power here. Like if you look at our elected leaders, for example, and some of the changes that need to be made in our country, we're completely backwards there. And a lot of it is because we have some, and I'm trying not to name names, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay out of the political stuff, but you have some 80 year old men, white men making choices who probably are threatened as hell by all the things happening in the world. Yeah. And it's working, either working with them or getting them out of power and getting new blood in that to talk about these things, getting more representation of people out there. And again, the, but then they're gonna get accused of tokenism, right? I was actually thinking that when you had mentioned, you know, um, making small incremental changes at home, you know, starting with kids, giving everyone dolls and things like that. I, my thing is in terms of the systemic institutional stuff is, uh, in addition to minimum age requirements, we need to have people age out of office. Oh, total. Oh, we need term. We need term limit. Term limits for Congress, but also uh, if you are seventy, you are not like you cannot run for president because yeah. then we have, like you said, eighty-five-year-olds who who remember, you know, what it was like when they were twenty-five, which is far too long ago in terms of socioeconomic progress, cultural progress. Right. And it's, it's a mess right now, I think, in terms of what is actually happening culturally 
and who the people who are making the laws are. Yeah, right. You're absolutely right. I think on that level, which is people are in fact quite threatened by the new, always the new, whatever it is. And progress is about both educating people at the bottom. And part of that is at the bottom, I mean like people. I don't mean like the worst, I don't mean like some sort of casting or whatever, just mean like the people, educating the people and naming things. So they actually, they're, they're not like, oh, this is crazy. No, this is actually happening. And then at the top, as we were just talking about, you know, people who are decision makers at any level, there's policy work that can be done so that there's a structure that supports change and there's an understanding of why change is important. And you end up sort of moving to the middle as much as possible. Otherwise, you know, education without policy is useless because people aren't forced to do anything different. Policy without education is exhausting because people are resistant, mm-hmm. right? That's what, that's probably the biggest like health behavior, health education learning that you will ever hear from me, which is you need policy and an understanding. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're apt. That's exactly where I think needs to happen in understanding that change takes time. I wish we could have this huge revolution and change everything all at once. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen and it's not gonna, if it does happen, it's not gonna last. Right, and that's also destabilizing, right? It's I mean, if you look at any like the French Revolution or even in India, you know, like when they kick the the British out, it's, it's destabilizing when everything changes at once. So incremental changes, same thing with weight loss, right? Like you make tiny changes a day and over the course of two years, you've now changed your lifestyle and so that's sustainable. It's frustrating when you're like, you know, it feels like it's three steps forward, two steps back or two steps forward, three steps back and you're actually behind where you started. Like right now, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of backlash to anything, you know, like Georgia, you know, the, you know, the senators in Georgia, there was a Jewish guy and a black guy who were elected in Georgia for Senate. Now there's voter suppression laws because, oh my God, people are freaking out. And I think there needs to be some systemic way of dealing with backlash and of dealing with that. Oh my God, you know, people, there's a, you know, there's a black guy in the Senate. Oh no. Oh no. And it's like, that's good. Uh, and I think that, I mean, that's a great point to end on not necessarily that there's a black in the Senate, but I mean, that's great, <laughs> but not the point that we would want to make here. The point being that, um, you, there has to be a systemic way to deal with progress and backlash. Otherwise, it's just swinging back and forth on the pendulum. Yep. Yeah, like anti-retaliation, right? Like you can't, technically, you can't retaliate if someone does something at the work in, in the workplace. But like on a, on a systemic level, in government, there's no such, there's no, there are no rules for something like that. So, yeah. And I, there's no, and it's also, even in the workplace, you can't retaliate, but there's ways of retaliating in government. And that's why I think Shalishi, that's the, where your point I think is really good. You have to have policy and education where you, 
have the the policy change, but and you can't have retaliation, but you also need to change people's minds so that they're not looking for ways to retaliate that are sneaky. Yeah, exactly. So Karen, thank you so much for spending yet another session with us. It's been so great to hear your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We will see you next season. Yeah. May, one of these days we will be live. One of these days. We could always hope. So. <laughs> yes, yes, I hope indeed. so. All right. Take, Take care. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.